on the job with Francis Leach and Sally Rugg. Welcome to On The Job, the podcast all about making your working life better. Francis Leach here. How are you? Hey, today's a bit of a special episode because it's the first of our video episodes as well. So on the Australian Union's YouTube channel, we're going to post this conversation and hopefully there'll be more of that sort of content in the near future. Today, we have a really interesting discussion about economics and workers. Now, when the economy is spoken about, it's often about profit and loss and market share and share price and, and house costs. Very rarely is it about, well, workers themselves and how they fit into the grand scheme of things and why workers are essential to the economy. Why without workers, there is no economy. So we're going to be talking today to a bunch of people who do a lot of work in this area. And we've put together a supreme tag team for exactly that purpose. Dr. Jim Stanford is uh, the Director at the Centre for Future Work at the Australia Institute. He joins us. Uh, we're also with Dr. Fiona McDonald, who is a policy researcher and policy fellow at the Australia Institute. And Dr. Mark Dean, who is the Laurie Carmichael Fellow at the Carmichael Centre. He's uh, also an expert on Australia's industrial capacity and smart manufacturing. So why don't we jump into it? On the job, economics for workers. Dr. Jim, Dr. Fiona, Dr. Mark, welcome to On The Job. I'm the only one who's not a doctor, so I'm going to be Dr. Francis for this very first episode of On The Job, the video. Hey, we're here to talk about economics for workers. And I was saying in the intro, I'll start with you, Jim, that often workers are spoken about when it comes to the economy, but they're never spoken to. The economy happens to workers in the sort of a wider narrative. Workers are part of the economy. How have we allowed this to happen? Well, the conventional discourse, Francis, over the last generation has all been about markets and supply and demand and business and profits and the equity markets. And in that world view, workers are just a disposable, productive input, you know, and that's it. They forget that workers are human beings and we have our own needs and our own priorities and our own values. Uh, so I think it's offensive how economics ignores workers and try to pretend that, you know, we're, we're just useful, uh, you know, in a production process. And by the way, the more we can lean and mean that production process on a just-in-time basis, so the workers show up when they're needed and they're gone when they're not needed, the better. Uh, forgetting that, wait a minute, society depends on human beings. We had a good reminder of human beings and the importance in the economy in the pandemic. And of course, in the Omicron wave of the pandemic when 20% of people were calling in sick because they either had it or they had been exposed to it or had to care for someone with it. And lo and behold, supply chains broke down. So, you know, gee, I guess workers are pretty important after all. They are indeed. So let, the whole point of today is to talk about workers and uh, giving workers, I guess, a, a toolbox of language and ideas to talk about economics that's important to them. Fiona, you've been working on a bit of a course with Jim and Mark about this. What, what sort of drove the idea behind having a sort of uh, a conversation about economics for workers or economics for unionists? Unionists, like everyone else, get excluded from the conversation for the reasons that you've already been talking about. The economy is portrayed as something out there that's got nothing to do with us. And 
The more that workers and unionists feel that they're able to speak about economics, the more confidence they've got in bargaining to actually make sure that they are at the centre of economic discussions and they can argue for wage, wage increases and for better working conditions. Well, let's talk about that, Mark. Let's start with wages and working conditions. And I guess the, the one big bogey that's often uh, played when it comes to uh, workers asking for a pay rise is inflation. And it's starting to re-emerge for the first time in decades, it's almost like a throwback to the 1970s, uh, that inflation was an issue, was the issue within the economy and wage rises were seen to be the reason for that. And we're hearing from conservative pundits and economists and politicians that that's it once again, that workers can't ask for a pay rise because if workers get a pay rise, inflation will go through the roof and the economy goes down the toilet. Yeah, it's really funny, isn't it, the one where the, that's the line the conservative voices are using um, and it reminds us of what voices were saying in the 70s as well that uh, workers have to take a, a huge hit in the standards of living that's the only way we're going to stop inflation from rising i mean nothing's changed they're using the same lines to say that workers don't deserve a bigger piece of the pie uh, and that if we demand more wage increases you know decent wage increases to uh, maintain pace with our standard of living that uh, that's going to make the economy explode uh, you know and not in a good way you know, not in a productive way as in it's going to implode really that's not a justification that is that is merely just repeating the same tired old conservative points of view that we've heard for decades uh, over the last 40 years to deny workers a bigger share of how productive our economy actually is well, Jim, what was wage growth like before the pandemic? It seems the economy, there's a before the <laughs> pandemic economy and an after pandemic economy. Wage growth wasn't really a factor. In fact, it was becalmed at that point. It wasn't, wages hadn't grown for years. Well, actually, uh, wages is one thing that didn't change before the pandemic and after the pandemic. It was crap then and it's still crap now. Uh, so for years before the pandemic, dating back to about 2013, uh, we have had record low wage growth in Australia. Typically, wages should grow around 4% a year, maybe even more. That's actually the healthy amount to keep the inflation at the right level and keep living standards growing. After 2013, that fell in half to about 2% a year. For This is nine years now since that happened. So for nine years, we've already been experiencing the weakest wage growth in the post-war era. Going back to the 1930s, you'd have to go to find anything worse than that. And then along came COVID, of course. So things got worse in the initial months of COVID. Uh, wages have kind of bounced back, but only to that lousy 2% level that, that we've been at. So this is not a problem that can be blamed on COVID. This is a problem that's rooted in something deeper, structural longer-term forces in society that are shifting the power balance in, in the economy Employers uh, have got more options, more power, more leeway to keep wages down, and they have done exactly that. And so, you know, we can't blame Putin. We can't blame coronavirus. We have to look in the mirror in Australia and say, how have we organized our economy in such a way that workers' share is falling and falling and falling? So, Fiona, when we talk about workers discussing wage rises and pushing back against the idea that asking for a wage rise is, is actually damaging the economy, what can workers say to that? Wage rises are investment in the economy. Workers' spending is critical to the economy. Uh, so 
it's exactly the opposite, Francis. That's uh, wages need those wage rises to support the growth in the economy. And it doesn't make sense, Mark, that we shouldn't have wage rises. When the other side that we're hearing this sort of disconnect between the idea that wages shouldn't grow, but the demand for labour and the labour shortages in many sectors is huge, but people aren't prepared to pay workers. Uh, in you know, if you want to use the market dynamic, there's the market dynamic. Demand for labour should be high because supply is low, but wages aren't rising with it. Yeah, and it's incredible when you look at it that way that uh, there is demand for labour, but workers, um, employers aren't willing to pay workers what they're owed. I mean, that to me just says that we can see profits rising and we're not seeing workers being employed to support business growth. Uh, so really, workers are missing out on their share and profits are exploding for employers. They're getting to take advantage of everything we've been through over the last couple of years. You know, uh, we, we have suffered uh, through this. We've all been in it together. But as they're demonstrating, we haven't been in it together. Workers have borne the brunt of uh, the damage to the economy and businesses have taken the lion's share of the continued growth in the economic recovery. Yeah, nothing says that more than the fact that when workers were overpaid, you know, robo-debt became a thing and people are being chased down for overpayment of social security payments. But when some businesses were overpaid, some good businesses handed back, their JobKeeper money, others kept it and weren't pursued. So it shows that there's a culture of uh, one rule for some and one mm -hmm. rule for another. Right. Can I ask about unemployment then? If, mm -hmm. if the demand for labour is high because we do have a labour shortage in some key sectors and the Prime Minister talks that maybe we'll have a, a, an unemployment figure with a three in front of it, that doesn't really represent the truth about what's going on in the labour market, does it? Because we know that so much of that job creation is in casual, uh, insecure or labour hire work and that people aren't getting real secure long-term jobs. So in that, in and of itself, it tells us a lot about how workers are being treated in the economy, Jim. Well, you're quite right, Francis. We have to dig a little deeper yeah. behind the official unemployment rate. Now, the unemployment rate matters and it is a good thing that it has fallen. Uh, it fell to 4% in February, so that's that's pretty good. And it may have a three in front of it. Prime Minister Morrison's prediction will probably come true. Uh, but that doesn't mean all our problems are solved. So first of all, the unemployment rate itself doesn't tell the whole story about people who aren't working. So we have a problem of underemployment in Australia, which means people have a job, but they are only working a few hours here and a few hours there. They aren't working as much as they want. We also have a whole group of people who are so-called out of the labor force is what the ABS says, which means they, they aren't working, but they, they want to work, but they're not actively seeking it. That is to say, they're not putting in several applications a, a week. So uh, hundreds of thousands of people in, in that boat. So the true underutilized pool of labor is much bigger than the 4% number makes it look like. Secondly, there's the question of quality as opposed to quantity, and that's what you were getting at. Yes, more people are working, but uh, first of all, the spread of insecure work in all of its forms, casual work, part-time jobs, labor hire, contractors, uh, these are roles where you don't know what you're gonna make. You're probably not entitled to the normal benefits and protections like annual leave, paid sick leave, super in many cases. So, you know, in that regard, it's not just enough to say more people are working. The question is under what conditions and terms and what's our ability as workers to get a decent share of the wealth that we produce. And Fiona, that issue around insecure work does go in many ways to uh, a wider societal problem, doesn't it? If you don't have a secure job mm -hmm. and you, you know, with some sense of permanency, 
you find it hard to get a bank loan. You find it very hard to save for a deposit for a mortgage. These are real life experiences that people have as a consequence of economic decisions that workers are subjected to. Thinking about through the um, pandemic in particular for women, the issues are those insecure jobs of actually seeing women leave the labour market and decrease their participation uh, because you can't, because they can't manage paid work, insecure, insecure, unpredictable work alongside unpaid care. So for many people who have got caring responsibilities, um, that's a really, you know, that insecure work is a really big problem because it just makes it impossible to manage your work, your work and life, work and care. And, you know, combined with that, with the other side of that is we've got, um, you know, a very employer-driven flexibility in many of our permanent full-time jobs. Um, and that, again, combined with insecure work and women's predominant, you know, uh, over-representation in part-time work, much of which is casual, leaves many families in a situation where women withdraw from work. So they're not the only group. Obviously, many young people are disproportionately affected by insecure work too. But it's it's a really big problem for women as well. It is. Uh, Mark, can we talk about what we can do about it at this particular point? You know, it seems that the after 10 years or near on 10 years of coalition government, insecure work has been structurally embedded in the economy in a way that, you know, it's going to take some heavy lifting to shift back and to get people the sorts of jobs that give them some sort of permanency and security and give them an opportunity to build a foundation in their lives. Yeah, and I think that, um, you know, to start with the big picture, I think, uh, you know, the coalition government seems to believe that it has no role to play whatsoever in, in this, this issue. And we need to move away from the idea that only the market can determine what is going to happen with uh, creating secure work in the future. The government needs to play a key role in this. We need uh, industrial relations reform all across the board. We need more people to join the unions. I might just get in there. And we need more union power to to help workers uh, organise and bargain for for better paying conditions in their workplaces. Um, Insecurity is going to continue to grow and put more people into conditions of precariousness. Uh, If we don't understand that government has a role to set the agenda in collaboration with businesses as well as unions, instead of just allowing businesses to take uh, whatever gains that they can and keep it for themselves, instead of sharing that with the workers that do the work. Because uh, as we've already been discussing, you know, the economy is work. The economy is workers. And until we actually put them at the centre of uh, at this this uh, uh, future building of our economy, we're not going to solve this problem. I want to come back to something you said, Fiona, around the gendered labour market. And aged care is one of those sectors where that's the case. And we're seeing at the moment there's a case before the Fair Work Commission looking to try to build on the recommendations of the Royal Commission into aged care to have a significant wage rise for aged care workers to try and deal with what's not just a crisis in aged care because the aged care crisis is actually a workforce crisis, isn't it? Can we, I know you've done a lot of work in this area. Can you give us a bit of an insight into what the issues are there and, and what needs to be done? Some of the key issues are workforce for the aged care system more generally a key issue with workforce, and that was recognised by the Royal Commission. The Royal Commission spent a very long time, hundreds of people made submissions, an enormous amount of public investment in that. And out of that, the Aged Care Royal Commission final report recognised that to get good quality, high quality 
care, you need a good quality, well-paid, well-trained workforce. Mm. And that we had undervalued aged care workers for too long and that needed to be addressed. The work value case that was put forward by the Health Services Union and the ANMF prior to the Aged Care Royal Commission completing its final report, it was seeking a 25% wage increase for the lowest paid personal care workers who were those frontline workers on whom the quality of the system really depends. And they are highly concentrated in precarious, casual work. There's high levels of underemployment and very poor training and no minimum qualifications. Um, for those workers. So that work value case was already running and the Aged Care Royal Commission recognised that as an avenue for change and recommended that the government collaborate with unions and employers in seeking this wage increase through the Fair Work Commission. And the government has chosen not to do that, which is remarkable given the um, Aged Care uh, Royal Commission's recommendation. It's There's a consensus, a very strong consensus amongst employers and unions in the sector and the government's chosen to kind of sit back and say, well, that's not, we're not going to, you know, intervene in that. So, so they almost have like an ideological yeah. black spot, a blind spot where they, they cannot come to yeah. the realisation that it's a workforce crisis. Yeah. They want to talk about fixing aged care, but they won't do yeah. what's necessary. They just cannot cross no. that Rubicon and, and, and do it. Investment in the care economy, investment, you know, public investment in care, whether it be aged care, disability support or early childhood education and care, which is absolutely critical to women's participation, is such a powerful mechanism for supporting better jobs for women and for strengthening our economy. And yeah, it is like a blind spot. It's just kind of seen as an expense rather than an investment. That's a great way to put it, Jim, isn't it? That it is an expense and not an investment. And it's a, a false economy because mm-hmm. the costs that come with not fixing aged care and giving people the secure jobs, there's, there are careers there. This is not an industry or a sector or the care economy where the demand for this work is going to go away. In fact, if anything, it's going to increase given the demographic profile of our community. So there, there's genuine career paths there, really important work to be done, but we treat it like people are flipping burgers in a fish and chip shop. You know, uh, it comes from a a kind of a long-standing bias that the private sector creates wealth and the public sector spends it. That's the kind of traditional narrative that you hear from uh, neoliberals about the economy. And when the private sector creates jobs, it's on the front page of the fin. And this is wonderful. Look at this growth. When the public sector creates jobs, it's either not reported or it's seen as a giant waste, a giant cost, a giant drain. The reality is these caring professions that Fiona has talked about are the fastest growing sources of work in the economy. Mm -hmm. And for good reason, because we need these things. You know, the pandemic, of course, highlighted that all the more. But even without the pandemic, we're going to need more health care. We're going to need ECEC uh, to support women's participation. We obviously have to improve how we deliver disability services and other, other caring services. So and there's hundreds of thousands of jobs that have been created. The health and social services sector is the fastest growing source of work in the economy. So why don't we celebrate that instead of seeing it as a drain, as money down the drain? And in order to celebrate it fully, we have to make sure those are good, stable, well-qualified, uh, well-paid jobs. With and a career path so people exactly. will stay in exactly. all that accumulated knowledge and really, you know, Fiona, really highly skilled work that is done by, by carers gets lost when people get burned and churned out of there. The other thing that really struck me about learning more about this, Mark, was 
in these gig economy jobs, which do exist within the aged care sector and elsewhere within the economy, the idea that someone picks up their phone late at night and, and looks to see where they're working tomorrow and they've got to click an app to see where they're going to be working and where those jobs are, far apart from the, the disruption and the, uh, the, the the chaos in people's lives because they, they literally do not know where they're going to be the next day, it, it really is sort of de demeaning and, and devaluing the work. How do we start to push back against the gig economy. So there are a couple of elements to this. There are some people who love the freedom that it offers and that they can work today and not tomorrow. That's well and good. But all the other downsides to it are not addressed and companies are able to distance themselves from their workforce and use the, the concept of the individual contractor as an individual enterprise to avoid having any responsibility for the workers that deliver them the profits that they make. Yeah, Francis. And, and you know, you make that good point that some people do want that flexibility. Some people are probably happier to pick up their phone and say, tomorrow, this is where I'm going to be. But I think the fundamental issue is that if they are being treated as an independent sole contractor, the employer isn't responsible for you know, creating all of the, the decent paying conditions around the obligation they have to employing that person in, in a different sense. To push back against the gig economy, we need employment contracts. We need, whether it's part-time or full-time, um, but we need to have decent contracts between employee and employers so that there is some kind of regulation around how much power the employer gets to have over those decisions. You know, these are decisions that are being made unilaterally by the employer to just say that these are the conditions, deal with it. Sure, maybe that works for some people, particularly if you're a student, if you're, if you're uh, just trying to, to uh, get by with a little bit of extra income while you're studying. But obviously for most people, that's not the case. People need consistency. They need to be able to plan their futures so that they can also plan other parts of their lives like housing, families. And really, uh, I think as we've discussed already, by removing that protection and that consistency, we're also preventing people from having careers and staying in uh, sectors that are of growing importance to our economy and being able to continue contributing. So think of as well of the, uh, the way that if you don't know where you're working the next day and you have to check on your phone, you don't know who you're working with either. So how do you build teams? How do you keep the knowledge and the, and the, uh, the efficiency that develops through teams? And, and it, there's plenty of evidence that this is the foundation of aged care and early childhood education and care, other industries that are, that are critical to the growth of our economy, where team building is critically important to delivering those essential services and ensuring that they are sustainable into the future. Jim, have we seen any examples of success, workers and unions pushing back against the gig economy and, and trying to redress the balance where it's all on the employer's term or all on the tech company's terms that you're working? Oh, sure. But pushback is happening all over the world, including in Australia. So, you know, this idea of working gigs is not actually new. Mm -hmm. You know, I know Uber and so on like to think, oh, I'm so innovative. This is a brand new idea. And this is why we need all new labor rules. It's actually hundreds of years old. You can go back uh, to the earliest days of the Industrial Revolution and find workers working gigs. You know, the gangmaster system where they took uh, basically labor crews to different places to work. Or they think of the hungry mile on the docks, yeah. you know, a century ago where uh, all the longshore workers would just go down and hope they got uh, tapped on the shoulder uh, for a job. Or uh, what was called the putting out system in early capitalism where workers worked at home on their own machines you know making textiles clothing small handicrafts peace work peace work exactly so honestly if you gave those people a hundred years ago a smartphone you could say it was a, a digital platform and make a million out of it so this isn't actually new they're just using the smartphone as an excuse to get around things that workers have fought for 
for hundreds of years, namely minimum wage, health and safety protection, pension, paid annual leave and paid sick leave. So uh, needless to say, people are pushing back all over and we've got a combination of uh, community pressure and awareness building, uh, union organizing where we can do that, um, challenges through the labor boards and the courts, and ultimately legislative change uh, to make sure that this loophole gets closed off. So, you know, in Australia, we've had a mixed record. We've had a couple of successes uh, in New South Wales, for example, the Industrial Relations Board has said Amazon flex drivers who are hired on a gig basis have to be paid a higher minimum rate. On the other hand, we've had some defeats. The Fair Work Commission, frankly, is in the stone ages on this issue, and they have been allowing the gig workers uh, exploitation to continue. And the high court is in the stone ages with them. And, and some recent decisions from the high court seem to allow businesses like Uber uh, to say, if I say you're a contractor, you're a contractor. That's basically what they're saying without any examination of the concrete conditions uh, of their work. So you know, we have to push on all fronts. Join your union push for change and get a government in that will legislate the change that's required. Yes, and unions have been doing some great work. I know that, say, for instance, the Transport Workers Union have been red hot on a number of these issues and have had some wins. Fiona, which other areas do we need to look out for the proliferation of this sort of gig work where workers are being turned into individual contractors? We've talked about transport and food delivery and, and, care. and, and aged care. Care, care is a really big one. Yeah. Uh, care is a big one in Australia and internationally. It's a really big one, but there are some really other mechanisms for actually dealing with that because a lot of that work is publicly funded. And again, and our Aged Care Royal Commission recommended that um, workers actually be employees rather than be outsourced via labour hire or gig um, you know, platforms. Um, and again, it was one of those um, recommendations that the government didn't adopt is that they put it out to further consideration so they're getting the Productivity Commission to look at it. So that doesn't all go particularly well for being oh, a good When the Productivity Commission looks yeah. at it, then we're in trouble. <laughs> but this is public investment. This is public money. That is a mechanism we've got. There's a lot more interest and there's a lot of action on kind of social procurement um, frameworks for ensuring that we get the outcomes we want from public spending. And it would be very simple for publicly funded care, which is the vast majority of our long-term care for aged people and people with disability and is, the, and is a large proportion of our early childhood education and care for conditions to be set within, the, within those funding frameworks. Can we talk about manufacturing now? It's one of those things that I think we learnt a lot about the fact that Australia was a well off the ball during the pandemic on this issue because we found ourselves at the end of supply chains that most people wouldn't have assumed we were making stuff because it just appears on our shelves and we had access to whatever we want whenever we wanted until we didn't. And we realised, Mark, that hey, we're not making stuff anymore in this country. Um, and maybe, you know, it's in our strategic interest, even at the very bottom sort of self-interested level to be doing so. So can you give us a state of play on where we are with manufacturing jobs and whether there's any real hope that we have a new manufacturing renaissance in Australia? I think some of the good news is that if we even think about the way that we don't make cars in Australia anymore, there are still more than 34,000 workers in auto component supply chains. So uh, automotive manufacturing in Australia is still alive and kicking. Um, it's just that we're not making the cars here. So it's even less visible than it was before. So that's something positive, I think, that we can build on. And um, and we've definitely done some work recently uh, around the opportunities for an electric vehicle uh, manufacturing industry in Australia. 
One thing that bothers me, though, is that there is simply no consistency whatsoever in the federal government's industrial strategy, which changes seems to change name every other week. When <laughs> well, it's, they're good at when making it's, announcements, mate. Great at making announcements. Uh, I think that they've announced the manufacturing initiative, uh, the modern manufacturing initiative, at least four or five times in the last uh, as many years or less. Um, and all that's doing is re-announcing things that have been ticking along in the background for a long time. And, you know, and, and arguably not as effective as it should be because here's another area where the coalition government still, still refuses to uh, actually commit to a strategy for the sector that can sustain it, that can restore some of these issues that we've had, uh, particularly exposed during the pandemic, such as, you know, our lack of ability to produce uh, PPE, personal protective equipment for frontline workers, uh, our inability to produce rats uh, most recently in response to the Omicron wave. These are issues that other countries have uh, kept front and centre, it seems, around the world. The idea that you need to be self-sufficient to an extent uh, to be resilient against some of these uh, shocks. And at present, Australia's manufacturing sector is not as resilient to external shocks as it should be. And that translates to uh, really bad outcomes for uh, Australians. And as we've seen our essential workers, when they can't be protected against uh, a d deadly disease as they're trying to protect the rest of us. So um, what we need is, is a strategy for the manufacturing sector, one that uh, identifies its weaknesses, builds on its strengths, and actually adequately funds uh, our existing small and medium-sized enterprises to uh, develop capabilities, to uh, vocational education and training funding being restored to TAFE to deliver the skills to those workforces and um, for them to grow and actually develop Australia's footprint in the manufacturing uh, industry again and become competitive once again in, in, uh, in, in our exports. Because the other side of this as well is that the uh, opportunity with new green energy uh, manufacturing is there to take if we want to take it and that's a smart manufacturing uh, job uh, boom that could be ours if we want it, but we need the will to actually, and be bold enough, do we not, to actually uh, investigate some of these opportunities when it comes to harnessing Australia's great natural strengths when it comes to generating clean energy. Oh, we, we've got such an opportunity here. Uh, there's no doubt about it. Um, energy superpower is what we could be, a renewable energy superpower, because there's no other industrial country that has the land mass, the sunshine, the wind, even the geothermal potential. Uh, that Australia has. So uh, this whole energy transition opens up so many opportunities, just not only the jobs in renewable energy itself, but then jobs in industries that use renewable energy. So, you know, as Mark mentioned, the global transition to electric vehicles, which is happening incredibly quick, all of the global automakers are going to be producing pretty well only electrical vehicles uh, within the decade. So what an opportunity for us to, you know, it was a huge mistake for us in 2013 when the government basically said, we don't need the auto industry anymore, go away if you want to. And lo and behold, they did. So here's a huge opportunity to reverse that mistake and rebuild uh, that. Or um, uh, using renewable energy in primary metals. You know, we've got uh, steel plants and aluminium plants uh, in Australia. They have to transition to renewable energy and it absolutely can happen. You know, we've done a study on the uh, Tomago smelter in New South Wales. Uh, which is frankly Australia's largest single energy consumer making aluminium and they are pledged to move completely to renewables and if we actually put some attention into it and some support from the government and the electric utilities what an achievement that would be we'd be making green aluminium 
and that would command a premium in global markets. So um, unfortunately, we're still held back because there's powerful vested interests that are making money while the sun shines uh, around uh, fossil fuel production and export. I, I guess while the sun shines is a bit of a misnomer there, but trying to make as much money as they can while this industry still exists. Yeah. And so they are uh, denying that there's a problem. They're trying to delay any type of action. And that has can, you know, created a lot of confusion and uncertainty for uh, businesses and investors and workers and communities alike. So uh, this is the moment to, you know, adopt a plan. You know, within 20 years, we're going to phase out the use of fossil fuels. We're going to build out green energy like you've never seen. And we're going to use it as the basis for uh, a new industrial renaissance. It is absolutely possible. It's there to take, but I just yeah. want to finish with this one, Fiona, because we've got to be careful, don't we, when we talk about uh, new jobs and things being shovel-ready. That's a that's a term of ice to get thrown around. Mm. That it is a gendered language around job creation, that the only real jobs are jobs that involve blokes in hard hats and in high-vis vests. And we meet, you know, workers need to be aware of this, and we need to make sure the conversation doesn't just steer itself to, you know, a, a you know, a, a male vision of what work is. Yeah, that's really important point, Francis. <laughs> I think uh, because that at the core of the problem is our devaluing of the jobs that women. Um, predominating the really critical jobs. And giving them opportunity in areas where they traditionally haven't been given access to. Yeah, so giving them an opportunity in the STEM areas is absolutely critical. Making sure that women can actually access those better paid, currently better paid jobs that offer careers and, you know, opportunities for progression is really important, but equally important is to actually address the undervaluation of the critical jobs that women do that underpin our society's stability and well-being. And um, until we deal with the undervaluation of those feminised jobs and create some proper um, career paths and opportunities for higher pay and for secure work, you know, we, we won't get those changes. And the other, you know, the other part of this is that we actually need to make some of those higher paying, more secure jobs, more carer friendly. And we need to make them carer friendly in a way that actually supports men to take a bigger share of the care. So for example, our paid parental leave is a really classic one. We talk about primary and secondary parents, which is just a ridiculous Thing. We should be we should be encouraging men to take on their primary role as parents at the same time as women. So there are lots of different things we need to do there. I want to thank you all for being with us for our very first edition of On the Job on the Screen. Dr. Mark, Dr. Fiona, Dr. Jim, and Dr. Francis Kinder. Dr. Francis, <laughs> do, do you give out any medical advice? Thank you for being with us on the job. And don't forget, if you are interested in these issues, australianunions.org.au is where you go to join your union and uh, to make sure that you get the benefit of being a union member and also fighting for the rights of workers. My name is Francis Leach and we'll catch you on the next edition of On The Job.